Welcome to Housing Our New Zealand. I'm Tom Simonson. Today I'm addressing the question of what should every councillor know about the current resurgence of contemporary papakanga on Fenua Maori. In order to address this question properly, I'm interviewing Jade Kake. And simply put, Jade is amazing. She has a book coming out entitled Rebuilding the Kayanga. She also hosts a podcast entitled Indigenous Urbanism. Jade is an architectural engineer, housing advocate, and researcher. She has experience working directly with Maori land trusts and other Maori organizations to realize their aspirations, particularly around Papakanga housing and marae development, and in working with mana whenua groups to express their cultural values and narratives through the design of their physical environments. Jade is fortunate to live within her home area of Whangarei, where she is leading several projects to support the reestablishment and development of Papakanga communities. So please, enjoy this podcast, and let me know if you have any questions. Thank you, Jade, for joining me this afternoon to talk about Papakanga housing. I wanted to start off with a very basic premise of what should every counselor know about the current resurgence of contemporary Papakanga on Fenua Maori? Probably rather a lot of things. Um, I suppose the first thing to understand is that Māori title as a different tenure system to general freehold title. Uh, often at a Fano or a hapu level, um, but not necessarily neatly correlating to the whole hapu or a whole whānau. Um, so they come in all sorts of divisions and all sorts of sizes, uh, but I guess the common factor is that it's communally owned and there's a, a direct whakapapa link. Um, now, most of the Māori land was placed into this title system uh, within the 1860s. And so there was a process whereby the rangatira of the time were identified and the legislation stipulated a 10-owner rule, which meant that uh, you could have named owners, one up to 10, who would be there representing the hapu or representing the traditional owners of that land. Um, which had all sorts of complexities. Um, and those titles have changed over time. Um, and the legislation has changed over time. And so it can be very complex for somebody who's not familiar. And probably the key pieces of legislation that govern that land tenure system are the Tūra Whenua Māori Act 1993, um, the Resource Management Act 1991. And then there's, there's some role in the Local Government Act in terms of how those, those pieces function together. Got it, got it. So what is contemporary Papakanga then? Mm, um, so traditionally uh, we did live in a, a village system uh, and there was three main forms of, of settlement. So there's the kainga or the unfortified village and often those were located um, strategically in proximity to resources um, and so on. There's the uh, pa which is a fortified village and then there's also seasonal encampments associated with Mahingakai and other food gathering areas. And some would be more permanent settlements and some would be those that you would retreat to during times of conflict. And some uh, hapu would uh, often move around some of these camps, especially at different uh, periods of time. So I, I suppose we often think about the 1800s because there's a lot of information about that time period. Um, and it was probably the most recent, uh, well, it was a period of a lot of change 
and probably the most recent time is uh, when we were still living in this very traditional settlement pattern and then of course there's there's a lot of transition after that period so the idea of contemporary papakoinga i think it's is very much the same but it's being able to reoccupy whenua maori as whanau or hapu uh, as as groupings of uh, people who have a whakapapa link to the land and to each other and it's being able to support the land and one another in a way that uh, not all, but many of us have not been able to do effectively for a, a long time. Got it. Okay, so why is it important for a counsellor to understand this history and to understand why this is important to the fabric or tapestry mm-hmm. of their community? Um, there's lots of kinds of housing going on, and there's been government initiatives go up and out and, and so on, but I think that just intuitively, and if I'm wrong, please tell me, but that this is part of a community's culture and history that gets revealed by reflecting on contemporary and historic aspects of it. But in, it, is there more that you could say about that? Um, I think from the starting point, I think councils and councillors need to understand the hapu landscape within their area because it has implications not only for papakainga but also for resource management issues because the, the act extensively refers to tangata whenua. It refers to iwi, although that can also refer to hapu, and in the north certainly we would um, acknowledge the primacy of hapu. And um, there's uh, many uh, activities within resource management that need to give effect to the views and concerns of the hapu. So just one, know the people in your area is a really good start. Form good re- good relationships uh, know who you ought to be speaking to regarding different matters and different parts of your rohe because there will be many different interests and some will be primary and secondary and overlapping and again it can be complex but once you form those relationships it gets much easier um, and it doesn't have to be a big mystery it's just um, maintaining good relationships as a treaty partner and, and I think taking that role as a treaty partner seriously now onto Papakainga, which is generally on Whenua Māori, which is not a huge amount of land in most districts, so nationwide it's roughly 5%. Some areas, such as the far north district, it's much higher. Um, I believe in Whangarei it may be around 4%. I think it's a little bit lower than the average, but the FNDC, far north district council, you may wish to fact check this, but I think it could be around twenty five percent. So it's a it's a lot higher. Yes, yeah, much higher. Mm. Okay. And so in that case, the things you need one of the big issues in the far north is around um, rating. A lot of Māori land is um, is has a lot of rates owing because um, often Māori land will not have a governance structure. And if there is, there's not a simple way of kind of apportioning, rating, or, or kind of managing that process. And then uh, landowners who may have been wishing to re- to develop and reoccupy their land but haven't been able to for a wide variety of reasons may be in a position to do so now, but the rates owing may be prohibitive. And um, there are others that are leading those conversations, particularly in the far north, but that's a big issue for councils is, is the rates arrears and how you manage that. Um, so councils do need to think about that. Uh, another aspect is around uh, resource consent fees and district plan provisions. So in Whangarei District, 
we're um, in a very good position because as of February last year, uh, the Papakainga plan change was concluded. And so although it was a long time in the works, we now have the rules associated. And what that effectively means for landowners is that they're able to lodge a Papakainga development plan in lieu of resource consent, which contains roughly the same information but doesn't require um, consent fees or notification, uh, which is really important. So it means you can do Papakainga as a matter of right as long as um, you can demonstrate that the land can take it, basically. If you, if you factor in the carrying capacity of the land and your professional engineer says, we've done all the right things to accommodate the loading of this number of dwellings plus any other communal facilities, uh, and then the council will keep that on file. And as you go to building consent for your successive stages, they really just need to check and say, oh, yes, here's your master plan and your engineer's reports. This later stage fits within it great no resource consent required so that's a really good development but it's not across the board not every council has a provision like this one so western bay of plenty uh waikato district um i believe it's hawks bay or i forget the name of the council down that way but uh, there's a council there that also has a really good provision uh, and some of them vary but those are probably the better ones got it sounds like there's a number of councils that are kind of tackling this to help uh, streamline and mm-hmm. expedite the processing and that coupled with relationships with um, obviously Iwi Maori within the district itself um, can lead to greater outcomes and obviously that's why councils need to be addressing working with these groups these obviously native groups uh, much more closely to facilitate this to understand and monitor where there are hiccups Mm -hmm. and where things can be improved to to continue to establish strong relationships for the purpose not only of the treaty but also for um, consenting Mm -hmm. and to build a better relationship all around. So something our council doing well is that um, they committed from the beginning of of the two projects our whanau are currently working on they committed to the relationship with us from the beginning and so we started with a pre-app meeting that went all day and was at our marae pihiawiri. And we went on a hikoi or a walk over the whenua for, for, one, for one of the projects. Uh, and then uh, since then, we've been having regular meetings as required. So we talk to our main contact and council and say, these are our current issues or current things we're working on or current questions. And she will go away and she will assemble her team from within council. And then we bring whoever we need to the table. So, for instance, the last meeting, they had their engineers and we brought our engineers. And they were able to meet face to face and talk through the issues that were relevant to where we're at and the planning process. And we really appreciate that close working relationship because it is a bit different to your um, general development process where you might have a few pre-app meetings. Um, but I'm glad that they're able to use that pre-app meeting um, provision to support us as we uh, progress towards lodgement of this Papakainga development plan and beyond. Um, the other, I guess, good thing is that uh, the development contributions person has um been really available and really flexible about how they calculate those development contributions. Um, So something she told us on one of our first meetings is that if you have, say, a central amenity building and a few other smaller 
um, cabin type buildings and she wasn't trying to prescribe how we might want to design but if we did that that could be rated as a single unit so if we are doing things that uh, are a little bit unconventional and maybe don't fit the norm of the kind of dwelling they would generally see they're able to use some discretion in calculating those development contributions which we appreciate. Yeah, I can imagine that as you go through this process, you don't necessarily fit all the standard single-family detached or multi-family unit type of building. And council flexibility in that approach is probably really useful in the overall preliminary design and the outcomes for development contributions, use, um, impacts, building, and so on. And they also uh, volunteered to uh, prepare us invoices in advance that we wouldn't have to pay but we could use to um, put in with a funding application to say this is how much our fees and contributions will be and they were happy to stand by that amount and have it printed on paper for us to submit to a funder which again is really helpful because you are funding dependent with these kind of projects and if there's uh, unexpected changes or variances it can really um, slow down the process and cause difficulties because you don't necessarily have a ready source of additional finance. Yeah, so that kind of comes back to the the benefits of really robust pre-planning so that everybody's on the same page for the outcomes, letting them know that you'll be going to funders, that there are things going on in the background that the council can actually, with probably little effort, help uh, facilitate the development. And so we really um, want our councils to be facilitators and enablers through this process. I know for our council, this is new for them. They're still learning as they go. So we appreciate their commitment to walking hand in hand with us as we learn together so that there is no surprises. We don't submit a package and they say, oh, this doesn't fit our rules. It's, you know, declined, go back again and we have no more money or, you know, worst case scenario. So we really want to make sure that by the time anything's actually filed with council, there's nothing, nothing will be a surprise to them and we're able to progress to the next stage together. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I'd like to jump a little bit to your book, which is due to come out at least from the time of this podcast next week. Um, You've done research. Um, Obviously, you have a a tremendous amount of understanding about public housing here in New Zealand, and you went abroad. You went to the United States, I think, among other places, to kind of explore some options and approaches other places are taking on um, indigenous housing. Maybe you can share maybe some transferable knowledge Mm -hmm. or experiences that you think councils might find useful, or at least that you found particularly useful in your planning. Mm. Yeah, um, so it was. I was quite fortunate uh, to be able to spend a bit of time in Canada and the United States, and particularly uh, because of the conversations I was able to have with uh, Indigenous colleagues there that um, really informed uh, my thinking, particularly around policy and, and some changes that might be required at a central government level. But certainly, uh, were some of these changes engaged, they would have an impact at a local government level. Uh, I think the the number one innovation that I think has a lot of potential uh, is looking at uh, the Section 184 mortgage guarantee, uh, which is roughly at their equivalent in the United States of our Kainga Whenua loan. Now, the Kainga Whenua loan is the only mortgage product available for developing housing on Whenua Māori. It's underwritten by Housing New Zealand and it's currently only offered by one lender, which is Kiwi Bank, despite having been available for the past decade. Uh, so that 
for one, it's interesting that no other lenders have chosen to take this product up. Uh, so when I was looking at the Section 184 mortgage guarantee, uh, I found a couple of things. One, I found that uh, they, in the early stages, did have the requirement that we have, which is that you have to design the home in such a way that can be physically removed in the event of a default. But they no longer do that. What they do is they securitize the home against the leasehold interest in the land, which is 30 years with 30 years right of renewal. Now, for whatever reason, and I suspect it's the nature of our underwriting, we don't do that here. We have retained that requirement to physically remove the house in an event of a default, although to my knowledge, that hasn't ever happened anywhere. And so some of the developments I've visited domestically, you can see which homes are acquiring a funeral home and which homes have been funded with grant money. Um, now, for some projects, the topography might be such that you would want to have it up um, or on poles or whatever. But for many developments, uh, actually on slab would be the more appropriate choice. So you're really constrained by the finance in terms of your construction technology. So it would be good to sort that out. And um, again, I've noticed with the Section 184 mortgage guarantee, they securitize against the leasehold interest in the land. So why can't we do that here? Currently, we use a license to occupy, which is a modified form of residential lease under Te Whenua Māori Act 1993. And so if our government underwriter was satisfied with that arrangement, then we would be able to use that as the security. And the reason you need something as well, the reason that in the United States they're using the leasehold interest security is because like there, as with here, often indigenous landowners will not have alternative forms of security or freehold land or assets that could be put up to satisfy uh, the lender. Another thing that I found very interesting about the Section 184 mortgage guarantee is that the, um, some of the tribal entities are starting to take on the role of lending institution. They are able to access the same low federal reserve rate and, and have these mortgages guaranteed, but they are the lending institution. And they might charge the same interest rate as the bank, but that difference is what they can use to reinvest in social and affordable housing within that community. Uh, and I think that would be really exciting if that's something that we were able to explore here. I realize that might not be a reality for a lot of our hapu and iwi, especially uh, like us in the north, we're pre-settlement. But I do think that um, some of the post-settlement entities uh, who have amassed a reasonable, uh, you know, re rebuilt the tribal economic base to a point where they might be considering this type of investment and this type of development, that that might provide a really good model and there's a lot that the government could do to support that by underwriting that finance. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, that would cross my mind was the two points, or at least one of the two points that you made, was that obviously um, Maori could make that, that loan. But also I kind of half wondered if a council couldn't also be in competition with Housing New Zealand or other lenders, Kiwi Bank, in providing those kinds of loans as well. It's their district. Nobody knows the land or the processes like they do. Um, and they've got, in some cases, um, an ability to dip into their debt to provide that resource and also be a competition for the market. Hmm, that's an interesting point and not one that I'd previously considered. 
Um, something else I would be interested in is um, to what degree could you utilize the transfer of powers provision within the RMA to enable some of these functions associated with enabling development and consenting to um, hapu or, or iwi authorities? Hmm. Yeah, very interesting to, to note that. Um, I know that there's been a, a, an interesting background with councils and uh, particularly a number of iwi around the country because land was zoned certain ways so that there couldn't be um, more... Um, I guess, dense populations for various purposes or reasons, but giving over some measure of power back to Iwi um, would perhaps be an option to consider in facilitating more growth and actually to embolden the relationship to a great extent. Because mm, mm. I think if, uh, if we're really serious about our, our treaty relationship, it does involve handing over resources, it involves handing over power. Um, and that's been done to greater and lesser degrees, but I would love to see that uh, further explored uh, through the provisions of the RMA. Hmm. Okay, well, that's something seriously to uh, take a look at because um, obviously there's um, some benefits um, to maybe perhaps um, going down that road. You yourself are actually working on your own um, public Kanga housing um, program and project. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your personal experience on that mm-hmm. and what are the positives and negatives out of your experience in developing in that and how that's actually kind of informed your view as you've moved forward through your own role as a designer and in facilitating and in writing books. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting journey that I've been on uh, and it's probably been about 10 years in the making. And um, it was my own Fano projects and the desire within our Fano to develop our Tupuna Whenua that actually set me on this trajectory and led me to have this career, um, which I guess span, spanning architecture and writing and, and policy and, and research to a degree, centered around uh, Papakainga and, you know, re-establishing occupation on whenua Māori, as well as integrating um, our cultural narratives and values back into our built environments. So it really started and probably will end with my with my whānau projects. Mm. And uh, so probably about 10 years ago, and I guess I would have been coming to the end of my undergraduate studies, uh, my whānau began to have meetings around uh, this very idea. And we came from a place where we actually didn't have a governance entity. So we had land, but we didn't have a trust. And so we had, we had about 10 or 11 meetings just to, well, meet by meetings, I mean hui, which are large meetings, uh, for the purposes of discussing and deciding upon the establishment of a trust. And the reason I bring that up is because we're not unique in that regard. The uh, successive Māori land legislation has created a situation where you do need a governance entity to do any development, but many land blocks do not have one. And so <laughs> there's just a whole process of even getting your owners together, which could be, could be a handful, or it could be hundreds, or it could be thousands. And so it's a long process because you have to... Um, bring together all your evidence you have to make a real effort to build a a really good database you have to try and contact everybody you have to hold multiple meetings minute them appropriately 
You have to take all your evidence to court. You have to nominate appropriate trustees and, and go through a suitable process. Um, and then developing a trust deed and developing your policies is quite a lot <laughs> just to establish a, a functional organisation. And often um, this is people uh, that don't necessarily have governance experience, so there can be quite a lot of um, training and education and learning required to get to a point where you can be a confident decision maker. And there's the conflict between the Pākehā system, which is like this kind of trust system is, is governed by this legislation, and tikanga Māori, and, and trying to bridge the two sometimes causes conflict as well. So it's a lot of work sometimes just to get to the starting line. And um, I guess because of this interest, um, I was supported into other, f- other work whereby I was able to uh, learn a hell of a lot, but also support other whānau and, and hapū uh, with their projects, as well as influencing government and, and doing a lot of writing and thinking about policy. Which now brings me to the point where our whānau projects have you know, progressed past the starting blocks. And we have two projects where um, we've attained funding from Tupuni Kōkiri, to get to Papakainga Development Plan Lodgement Stage. And so for one of those projects, we are just entering preliminary design, and the other project, we're just starting master planning. Oh, congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's just it's just funny. I like to say how, how long the journey's been because I think it gives others a realistic sense of what's required. Um, and I, probably, I missed out many steps along the way, but there was a lot of work that we had to do as a whānau to really strengthen ourselves and be able to make good decisions to get to the point where there was a project rather than just uh, a mōmōyā or an aspiration or like a dream. Yeah. So maybe one of the biggest lessons you've taken away with is that these projects require an owner, somebody that helps carry that ball through the process regardless of how many other committees or funding organizations or government agencies, but it's got to be that owner, that hub? Or is there a different uh, lesson learned, would you say? Um, there's probably two parts to that. So you certainly need a legal entity, and they need to be robust and, and functional and able to make decisions and manage a bank account and receive money and write reports for a funder and so on. But you also, at least in my experience with my projects as well as the others that um, I've visited around the country, those that have succeeded have generally had one or sometimes a small number of dedicated whānau drivers who have stayed with that project the whole time, uh, haven't accepted no for an answer from various government agencies, um, have managed to work through difficulties within the family or within the governance entity, and those things do come up. And they've kept their eye on the prize and just kept pushing forward and, and really um, believed in that that vision and that dream and championed it on behalf of the collective and kept everybody moving forward. So the lesson learned for people working in a council, whether they're a councillor or a staffer or other, but was is that there is a whole series of hurdles Mm -hmm. that anybody working in this area is trying to overcome. And working within the council, anything that can be done to help streamline, like you were saying, the pre-application meetings to Mm -hmm. set a clear destination and process by which um, outcomes are actually visioned is extremely helpful to those other stakeholders 
stakeholders as well as to that owner of that project. And I would strongly encourage council um, staff in particular working within this area to know who are your counterparts in other agencies, such as Tupuni Kōkiri, such as the Māori Land Court. Be good to have a relationship with Kiwi Bank as well, potentially housing New Zealand. Make sure, although that's now shifting, so soon yes. to be kāinga order, and, and again, many of the things I've discussed today may end up being substantially reconfigured within this new setting and potentially in a really positive way. So I'm quite hopeful, although I don't know any more than anybody else. Um, but back to my uh, point is that do know who your counterparts are in those other entities, form good relationships with them, um, understand their roles because often uh, these Māori landowners will be being um, sent between different agencies and referred on by somebody who doesn't actually know and again getting conflicting information or getting sent to the wrong place when actually they needed to go over here and that lack of coordination is still a real issue um, so if you're within council it, it pays to really understand the landscape and understand the other players not just your own role yeah and that's incredibly important to understand from a governance perspective as well as from a staff perspective um, that there's a whole tapestry of people mm-hmm. and activity going on and, and to understand where that lay of the land is is incredibly helpful. Um, the other thing I would add is that there have been a number of good resources produced, um, whether that's a, a PDF or a physical booklet or, or a web uh, resource or podcasts and things like that. Um, and so, again, if you're working within the space, uh, pays to read the resources for one, but also to know where they're kept or, or keep copies yourself. Um, because often that's one of the first things I do. If whanau come to me and they're not sure where to start, I say, well, there's this fantastic booklet by Tupuni Kōkiri. There's this other really great one that the, all of the councils in the north collaborated on, and they contain different things. Read them both, have a think about them both, and then come back to me and we can have a conversation. So increasing literacy to ask the right questions at yeah. the right time. And we're fortunate that there have been a number of good resources produced in recent years. So it doesn't have to be a mystery or something that you kind of stumble through blindly hoping to find the answer. Got it. Got it. Well, I think this this particular conversation is really enlightening for anybody listening because it helps set a pathway for people to engage on this critical issue of public housing and Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, your knowledge and um, look forward to watching um, your, obviously, career progress as well as the release of your book next week, which is titled... Rebuilding the Kainga, Lessons from Te Ao Huri Huri. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jade, for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on the podcast.